just as an aside, Anna, can you hear that? If you lean close to your window, can you quite hear yeah. the Arctic monkeys uh, <laughs> who have decided that Norwich is the place for them to play? That's what is booming. Who's that girl there? <laughs> that is what, what is booming through the streets of Norwich at the moment. <laughs> They've apparently started at four o'clock in the afternoon, which I feel like is a little bit early. Excellent. Is it a music festival on a Wednesday? Like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. I don't understand. The big bands don't come to Norwich on a weekend. All right. Like they, they come on a football stadium uh, because we don't have an arena yeah. and they, they come on a Wednesday afternoon. You get a free gig every now and then, though. A very muffles. Uh, it's it's such a small city that like the audio just travels. I don't know why you're complaining. This sounds like perfectness. <laughs> like it's a free concert. I, I mean, it's fine. Until you realise that, you know... You're recording a podcast. You have eight more hours of work from this point and, like, it's just muffled bass. (laughs) (laughs) I did, however, take time to watch the WWDC announcement and all of the, the kind of the Apple stuff around... What's it called? Vision Pro? Yes, Vision Pro. I haven't had Vision Pro for a long time. I've been wearing glasses for years. <laughs> but this thing looks kind of cool. For 4K in each eye. I wish I could get that with normal eyesight. It's interesting because I saw something about you can get like prescription lenses inside of it. Like so that. Oh, and they magnetically attach. Yeah. Like when your prescription changes, how much does it cost to get your Vision Pro glasses updated? I think if your worry is cost, this might not be the headset for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> I I guessed about 2000. And then when they came out at 3500, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that is quite a bit for two hour battery life as well. My first reaction was you can buy a car for that. My car did cost that. That's crazy. The, the thing is, though, it is early technology, and I, I liken it a little bit to the to the iPhone because it's kind of murky in its use cases. I'm like, what would I really use it for? We were having a bit of a kind of a doodle about what one password would look like if it ran on the the vision. Like, could you look at a credit card or look at a a, a document and instantly save it? Like it would kind of read it for you and store it securely and all that kind of stuff. Or could you, you know, walk up to a door and you've actually saved the pin code and maybe it's like a, a, you know, a time-based pin code. So it changes every 30 seconds and you could save that near that door. So if you, you know, wear this and come to work every day, you know, you rock up on this door and you've instantly got the code and only you can see it. That kind of stuff, like it has me optimistic for the future of this thing, even if current version of it, the first version of the iPhone, I was like, I don't really need that. Now I can't live without it. So I find a similar kind of optimism in this that like the technology is only going to get better. The headset's only going to get smaller and the kind of augmented world look pretty cool. I basically the only thing I want is to remember people's names when I see their face. 100%. I love all the exciting possible capabilities of this thing. And you're thinking about how it can be used for one password. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We we had a, a, you know, a doodle session over one of the lunchtimes, got the whole design team involved and got some kind of weird mock-ups together of, you know, all the things that it could possibly do. Nice. We do that every time new new technology across any of the, the companies comes out. Yeah, you know, you've always got to be thinking about these things. It's the document saving for me that would be, you know, huge. We just got our passports renewed, so new passport comes in the mail. Okay, now I've got to take the picture, scan the picture, upload it, rename it, put it into one password so I've got everything, update the item issues, all that kind of stuff. Like if I could just sort of look at it and like, you know, do the finger pinchy thing and just throw it into one password, that would be awesome. Yeah. 
That would be really cool. I feel like we're entering this like Ready Player One kind of Matrix style world now that used to feel like it was in the distant future, but it very much feels like we're pretty much there now, right? The key difference for me is that I don't think the world of Ready Player One would happen, right? Like I don't think... I think there would be a bit of that, but I don't think people would recede into their own homes and like switch off everything so much mm. that only the virtual world exists. And that's why I kind of find like the difference between Apple's headset and all the other headsets is that like it kind of lets the rest of the world in. I have a um, Oculus Quest thing. I feel very vulnerable when I'm wearing that because at any time someone could come along and just smack you in the head. <laughs> and the Apple one where you can kind of dial yourself into the real world or out of it. That's really the difference between like virtual reality where you're like hung up in a chair and, you know, you're not really moving, but you think you are versus like augmenting the world. Meanwhile, I didn't upgrade from the Nintendo Super Nintendo <laughs> because I couldn't handle the motion sickness. So I mean, the SNES was a good a good console yeah I, I you're probably still trying to finish lion king because that game <laughs> that game was just stupid hard it was oh man those hyenas we've probably dwelled on wwdc <laughs> enough we've got way too deep way too quickly for a wednesday afternoon that is very true <laughs> so this is actually our final episode of the series I can't believe it because I only found out last week we were actually taking a break. (laughs) But don't worry, we will be back in late summer, early fall with a packed out new season. Any spoilers, Anna? What what we can... (laughs) You're not giving any spoilers. Okay. I mean, nothing is planned at this stage. We've got a Christmas special coming (laughs) You're thinking about Christmas already. I am, yeah. So you do want to make sure you're, you know, staying subscribed. And if you've enjoyed this season and you want to hear more episodes, please do feel free to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. And something that what I think these reviews should be about, I think you should complain quite loudly about us taking a break. I think you should treat this almost like a like a really bad breakup. And the reviews that that you leave should be all complaining about us taking a, a few weeks to <laughs> to do what is perhaps our real end of the job, which we you know make and support one password. Whereas we do this bit for a bit of fun, honestly, and a and, and a bit of well, you do, Matt. This is my everyday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say Anna's gonna cut the crap out of this. She's gonna cut this a hundred percent. I mean, this is this is why I think the brilliant thing would be is that all the reviews are like, I can't believe they're taking a break. I'm heartbroken. I want more episodes. I want at least (laughs) one a week rather than one every other week anyway. I'm crying in the bath, uh, stress eating chocolate. Yeah. All that. I think that would be brilliant. Okay. (laughs) So now we have in beta save and sign in with passkeys using one password in the browser last year we joined the fido alliance i'm actually on the border of the Fido alliance oh quick flex there uh, i know and we are committed to building a safer simpler and faster login solution for everyone and now we're taking a huge step forward in announcing that passkey support has arrived in one password using the public beta versions of one password in the browser you can now save and sign in online with accounts with passkeys the best thing is we also have a directory it is passkeys.directory so this directory is basically you know us highlighting all of the sites that have passkeys available 
I have a few favorites that I like to try them with, DocuSign and, and some other things. Sarah, have you created your first pass key yet? I have not. I am, as you saw at the start of this episode, <laughs> I am not one of the first people <laughs> to adopt technology because I have a very steep learning curve. I think that's absolutely fine. In the company, I, I've walked people through saving their first passkey because they're on very few sites at the moment. The passkey directly kind of points you in the right direction. But most of them are like hidden away in account settings and that type of thing. So uh, maybe during the during the show's break. We'll, uh, we'll take the time to, to walk you through saving your first one. I did mine this morning. Did you? I did with Okta. Oh, That was nice. as exciting as it got, really. <laughs> I feel like they're anticlimactic. This is the thing. I, I was walking someone through on our, on our sales team and uh, I was like, and then you click this button and one password came in in the top. It did a nice little animation and it went out again. And they were like, have I saved it? It's done. Is it there? I was like, yeah, go to sign in. And then you go to sign in. And it, it doesn't even do anything. It just one password comes in, it signs you in and it pops out again. So it, it is anticlimactic, but it is much better for security. And you can grab it in our beta extensions, which cover the following browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Edge, Brave and Safari, which is which is quite a few. Mm. I think I was going to say over the break, if people all take the time to go to passkeys.directory to add any sites that they would like to see there and start helping us build up that directory. That would also be excellent for folks like myself so that when we do eventually get around to making these passkeys, we've got a handy guide of all the places we can go to get it done. Absolutely. Nice. All right. So let's kick off the show, as we always do, with some Watchtower Weekly. This is our longest running regular segment named after one password's Watchtower feature, where we chat about some of the latest security news and recent data breaches each episode. And this week, our first story is pretty wild and from bleeping computer. So an IT employee has impersonated a ransomware gang to extort their employer. <laughs> this is wild. Wow. And a 28-year-old man from Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire? Yeah. I always read this as Herefordshire, which is a different shear in the UK. Classic UK <laughs> county name there. Hertfordshire. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is the most irrelevant part of the story. A 28-year-old 20, <laughs> man from Hertfordshire in the UK has been convicted of unauthorised computer access, which is the, the name of the law in the UK. With criminal intent and blackmailing his employer, a recent press release explains that in February 2018, convicted man Ashley Lills worked as an IT security analyst at an Oxford-based company that suffered a ransomware attack. Like many other ransomware attacks, the threat actors contacted the company's executives demanding the ransom payment. Due to his role in the company, Lills took part in the internal investigations and incident response effort which was also supported by other members of the company and, of course, the police. However, during this phase, Lils is said to have attempted to enrich himself from the attack by tricking his employer into paying him a ransom instead of the original external attacker. Unknown to the police, his colleagues and his employer, Lils commenced a separate and secondary attack against the company. Reads the announcement from the South East Regional Organised Crime Unit, Soroku. He accessed a board member's private emails over 300 times as well as altering the original blackmail email, changing the payment address provided by the original attacker. The plan was to take advantage of the situation and divert the payment to a cryptocurrency wallet under Lils' control. Lils also created an almost identical email address to the original attacker and began emailing his employer to pressurize them to pay the money. However, the company owner 
wasn't interested in paying the attackers and the internal investigations were still underway at the time revealed Lille's unauthorized access to private emails pointing to his home's IP address. Although Lille's realized the investigation closed in on him and had wiped all the data from his personal devices, by the time the organized cybercrime team stormed into Lille's home to seize his computer, it was still possible to restore the incriminating data. Lille's initially denied involvement, but five years later, he pleaded guilty during a Crown Court hearing. The rogue employee will return to court on the 11th of July 2023 to hear his sentence. I mean, this is a wild story. When this first started, I thought what had happened is that it was him all along that was like orchestrating all of the things. But actually, it was just a bandwagon that he seems to have jumped on, mm. which is wild. I mean, how self-assured and obnoxious do you have to be to try and do something like this? That was exactly, I was thinking the same thing, Matt, where it was like, okay, you know, he just decided to do this himself. But no, it's like, oh, this person has a good idea. Why don't I jump on board and try to do the same thing? And I'm thinking the original attackers are going to be sitting there like, hey, that's not our email address. What's happening? But like mm. so many the, the ransomware attackers are probably sitting there thinking, hang on, did we get fished? Is someone trying to <laughs> yeah. someone trying to fish this? Oh yeah. Whoa. I don't know why you'd even try to do this though when your employer isn't going to pay the ransom. Like, no. no, we're not doing it. Well, maybe if I try and do it myself, they'll pay it. Did you say please in the email from you? Like, what would be your thought process? Mm. And he works as like a security analyst. Like, if we can't trust our security professionals, who can we put our trust in? <laughs> I mean, hearing most people's route into computing security, a lot of them are, <laughs> are on one side and then decide to make a career <laughs> oh. out of it and kind of move to the other. Oh, man. Which, I, you know, I think it, it breeds good security. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> so... An Android app has started secretly recording users after almost a year it was listed on the Google Play Store. And this is from The Verge. An Android app recording called iRecorder Screen Recorder, <laughs> catchy name, uh, began <laughs> as an innocent screen recording app, but turned evil nearly a year after it was released, as detailed by Ars Technica. The app first came out in September 2021, but after an update the following August, it began recording a minute of audio every 15 minutes and forwarding those recordings through an encrypted link to the developer's server. The whole thing is documented in a blog post from ESET researcher Lucas Stefanko. In the post, Stefanko says the app was updated in August 2022 to include malicious code based on the open source Amith Android remote access Trojan. The app has had 50,000 downloads by the time it was reported and was removed from the Play Store. Stefanko said that apps with Amith embedded in them had initially made it past Google's filters. Because remember, when you submit an app to Google, it actually like looks through all of the code and kind of checks for this type of thing. Scam apps aren't new on either Apple or Google's app stores, and recorder apps can be especially bad. Stefanko's blog post highlights a particularly sticky problem as well, apps turning to the dark side after you've had them for a while, using permissions you granted at the outset to gather sensitive information from your device and shuttle it off to the developer for nefarious activities. Google is allegedly working on updates that will tell you via monthly notification which and when apps have changed their data sharing practices as it finds out. 
Similarly, this news comes as the Amazon-owned maker of video surveillance devices, Ring, will pay $5.8 million over claims brought by the FTC that Ring employees and contractors had broad and unrestricted access to customers' videos for years. According to the FTC's complaint, Ring gave every employee as well as hundreds of third-party contractors full access to every video, regardless of whether the employee or contractor actually needed that access to perform his or her job function. The FTC also said that Ring staff and contractors could readily download any customer's video and then view, share, or disclose those videos at will. I mean, both of these stories are just terrible and ridiculous. Can we just take a moment to take that in? Every Amazon employee had access to these videos. I, uh, yeah. And could disclose them at will. Uh, yeah. So so there's, there's kind of two stories at heart here, right? One is the fact that they have had to pay fines over bad practices here. I think the Internet of Things has had a rough start in terms of privacy, and it's starting to get better Laws are coming in. California saw one about default passwords on on devices. And similarly, that's come to the EU and other areas. So like we are on this, I feel like as a as a global society, we are aware of this problem. But that's not without falling at every single hurdle on the way there. And I think the same thing for, you know, some of these recording apps and and that type of thing, like Google and Apple are doing a really good job of reviewing apps before they put them up for sale. But it's a constant battle. I think security is is just like trying to hold back the dam of predatorware like this and a couple get through and it's kind of a miracle that more don't. But a year is a long time that this was out for. That's my concern here is just how long it was available on the app store. It's one of those where I can't even quite figure out what they're doing with the data, though. You know what I mean? Like if someone took a minute of my audio every day for every one minute, every 15, (laughs) it would it would not contain anything fun. (laughs) And it would probably be super boring. It would be what's for dinner, mom, all that kind of stuff. Like I understand, you know, there's corporate secrets and espionage and all that kind of stuff. I just, I don't get the randomness of it. Like it's it's one of those where it's a weird puzzle of mess, but you know, at the same time, you know, you get a new TV and it's got like, let's hook up the microphone. Let's do this and let's do that. And it's like, who's listening to this? Can my car actually, like I can talk to my car. Can my car, who can listen to my car? What's happening? Yeah. The minute every, uh, every 15, it, it would just be absolute gibberish. I don't know why you would attempt to get the haystack with a promise of a needle. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of these kind of third-party contractors and stuff are to help, you know, essentially the machine to learn. And so, like, you know, when someone approaches with a dog, they're able to pick out, okay, this is a dog. You've got to learn what this looks like. But at the same time... I would argue that we're smart enough on this kind of stuff already and let's perhaps start building out laws that do prevent this kind of access. Yeah. I think it's just the capability of a company like Amazon to do kind of mass surveillance on such a huge scale. And I just think at least we have agencies like the FTC and kind of security researchers holding these companies like Amazon and Google accountable. So... I just hope the fines and the bad press are like enough motivation for them to make changes going forward and improve their privacy and security practices in the future. I, I think it's loud enough that it will help towards like proper laws in place to deal with this type of thing. I'm actually, uh, uh, and maybe this is me alone, I'm less scared of Amazon doing this because I know what they are doing it for. 
Like I know their end goal is to just is to make money out of easily features that identify things on the video. But I don't know what the, you know, rando dude recording one minute every 15 is <laughs> is really after, right? Like that's the thing that, that concerns me there. Yeah. All right. This next one. OpenAI CEO raises $115 million for crypto company that scans people's eyeballs. So this one's from Ars Technica. A company co-founded by OpenAI CEO Sam Altman has raised $115 million for WorldCoin, a crypto coin project that scans users' eyeballs in order to establish an individual's unique personhood. <laughs> uh, in addition to leading the maker of ChatGPT, Altman is the co-founder and chairman of, I get this for a name, Tools for Humanity. Did you watch uh, Silicon Valley? I don't. Oh, no. I find it too close when we read stories like this. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a company name in there called Tethics, so it totally reminds me of that. Obviously, tech and ethics smushed together. But yeah, it's all too close. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Tools for Humanity have today announced 115 million in Series C funding from Blockchain Capital. Blockchain Capital said that WorldCoin's World ID system that involves eyeball scanning will make it easier for applications to distinguish between humans and bots. So this is from their funding press release. WorldCoin strives to become the world's largest and most inclusive identity and financial network built around World ID and the WorldCoin token, a public utility that will be owned by everyone regardless of their background or economic status. So the WorldCoin offers a world app for iOS and Android, which allows a person to set up their WorldCoin account and access a digital wallet connected to WorldCoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum and other digital transaction currencies, uh, including stable coins, the company says. So the eyeball scanning part comes into play for anyone who signs up for a World ID. This requires going to a physical location and using your eyes and a device called an orb, <laughs> the orb, uh, to verify <laughs> that you're a real person. Oh, <laughs> the orb, this is what WorldCoin say, the orb uses iris biometrics to establish an individual's unique personhood and then creates a digital world ID that can be used pseudonymously in a wide variety of everyday applications without revealing the user's identity. So, blockchain capital general partner Spencer Bogard defended WorldCoin against privacy and security criticisms. So he says, I thought WorldCoin was some dystopian Orwellian nightmare. Then our team invested hundreds of hours evaluating what the project's contributors have actually built, and I changed my mind. So he says, WorldCoin is likely the single most misunderstood project in all of crypto. I mean, that's a vast statement. That, that <laughs> sentence is doing a lot of work there. Uh, noting that upon first glance, it appears to be a noxious combination of hardware, biometrics, crypto and AI. But in reality, WorldCoin's world ID is the most compelling solution we've seen. In short, WorldCoin has a unique opportunity to establish and scale a new privacy-preserving primitive for the internet that enables any application to easily distinguish between machines and humans. Okay, so the orb aside, right, just how kind of ridiculous this is, I, I think the, the I read into this the direction that it points more than the stupid names and, and ridiculous hardware. Like... The, the percentage of the population that is going to walk somewhere, get their eyeball scanned in order to, you know, deal as part of this weird underworld of finance, it's low, right? But the direction that it points towards something that is 
kind of known as as verifiable credentials. The idea that like soon in a world, I should have read that in the uh, in the movie trailer voice. In a world, <laughs> in a world. <laughs> but I I do think that something like a passport at some point will become digital, right? And at that point, the physical thing is an aside. And when you share your digital passport with someone, right, to verify who you are, you probably don't want to give them the whole thing because then we need to get into, like, much better fraud. And so that's why your physical passport exists, right? Because you hold it, it looks like you, you hold it up to someone, but actually... On the other end, all they're doing is scanning it and checking that you are the person that it responds to. And so in the software world, you probably want to verify your identity, but you don't want to give over the whole thing. And I think this is generally the the route that they're trying to go with this, is that you get a token instead of the actual thing. And that token, you can create other tokens from and like share what you need to. So instead of handing over your date of birth to everyone who asks whether you're old enough, you could just hand over a token that says, yes, this person is old enough. And so it restricts the amount of information that you're actually sending. And it would also, which they say is the, um, you know, the world's single most biggest problem is distinguishing between bots and humans is like you could hand over a token that gets generated at the point of your identity to say, yes, this is a person or an individual's unique personhood, <laughs> which is the first time I've ever heard the word personhood. <laughs> I feel like you've given this a lot of thought, Matt. Like, I yes. feel like, are you an investor? Because, like, I'm, like, in a whole other world. Like, I'm like, what is even happening right now? I feel like you could be describing passkeys almost. Well, passkeys is a direction similar to what this is, which is verifiable credentials. But I don't have to walk to the bank and scan my eyeball. <laughs> I don't believe in this company or anything they're doing in terms of like the orb. This is all ridiculous. But the, the direction that they're pointing towards like tokenizing something, I think is the right direction. It is the route, you're right, the passwords have gone in. Instead of sharing over the, the actual password, you are generating a token and then you are showing that token to the website and then that is mathematically agreed that you have generated that rather than like, you know, handing over something, something physical or something else. You know, I, I have given this a lot of thought. I, I do think it is uh, the, the, the direction <laughs> that kind of society will start to go in. But I don't think I will have to go to a place and get my face scanned by the orb. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're saying we're not quite living in the latest sci-fi blockbuster just yet. No, I feel like they took one step in the right direction and then several steps in a completely different one. I'm going to put my Vision Pros on and just stay unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I think we can jump right into my chat with Scott J. Shapiro. Scott recently released a new cybersecurity true crime novel, and I got to catch up with him earlier to dive into the book and all about some of the exceptional historic hacks that it covers and what we might learn from them. It was a fascinating chat, and we started by talking about war games with Matthew Broderick, which he held as like the startings of society understanding the dangers of hacking, which was a great start for me. The pinnacle. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me on the show today is Scott J. Shapiro, 
author of recently released Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. This is a hacking and espionage and cybercrime as you've never read them before. Fancy Bear Goes Fishing tells the true stories of five great hacks, their origins, motivations and consequences. I cannot wait to get stuck into this true crime novel. So Scott, it's great to have you here with us today. How are things? Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Things could not be better. How has the uh, how has the release of the book been? It's gone very well, very busy. It's like, you know, you hear nothing and then all of a sudden, like, you get contacted every two minutes. I would say my bar of a, a book release is any review, you know, likening you to something really good. And I read the Guardian review, which the image at the top was Matthew Broderick in War Games. And so immediately I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good review. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I mean, because... War Games figures prominently in the book because it actually figures prominently in the development of the criminal laws around hacking, which we can talk about. So it's actually, I mean, not only is it a great movie, and I remember seeing it when it first came out, it was a good harbinger for a, a review. That's fascinating because I grew up watching it post Ferris Bueller. So I see it and it doesn't quite look anywhere near realistic or anything that could possibly happen. So maybe you have a different lens on it. I remember I was a computer science major in college. I had been coding for some time. And then I went to see it with a bunch of friends and they all came out saying, oh my God, can computers do this? Can computers really start off a thermonuclear war and can people hack into it? And I was like, no, no, they can't, they can't do that. They can't do that. It seemed unbelievably unrealistic to me at the time. It now seems super unrealistic in hindsight. But Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States at the time, had seen it in a special briefing a couple of days before it came out. And when there was a big assembly of muckety mucks in Washington in the Oval Office in the White House, Ronald Reagan said, I just saw this incredible movie. You should all see it. And that actually started the ball rolling for the creation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the major hacking statute in the United States. That's incredible. I had no idea about that. <laughs> hey, hey, guys, I've seen this brilliant documentary. You're never going to believe it. <laughs> so can you give us a bit of background on you and, and why you decided to, to write this book? Where did the kind of the seed of the idea come from? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I had been a developer coder, you know, when I was young and through college and through law school. I gave it up because I, you know, I was in the middle of law school and then I went and got a PhD in philosophy and the World Wide Web came on on the scene and it just was a lot of stuff that I didn't stay up with. And as my career went on, I just forgot all about computers and the internet. I mean, I used it, of course. And then when I wrote a book a couple of years ago with my colleague, Ona Hathaway, on the history of war from 1600 to, to, at the time, the present, which was 2014, 2017, people kept on asking me, what about cyber war? What about cyber war? That's the new thing, isn't it? And I was like, I don't know. And I started doing research on it and I found it almost impenetrable, which was really strange because I had a very strong background in programming and theoretical computer science. And I just, I had no idea what was going on. And I was just shocked that anybody else knew it either. That's really cool to kind of, you know, learn alongside writing the book and gives you an interesting angle to kind of translate it to others who are going to learn along. Right. Because I was like trying to, in my career, I've always tried to write books that I wish existed so I could have read them. And 
there was no such book like this um, because cybersecurity is a very young field. And so you either have kind of sensationalistic books that tell us how we're all going to die or books that yell at us because our passwords aren't long enough or because we don't use a password manager. <laughs> I just felt like I just wish there was a book that was readable that would explain how these things happen. So that's what I did. I set out to try to try to do it. And it was really, really hard to do because it's really hard to learn about the subject. So this book, you outline five hacks. One of them, I'm assuming, has something to do with the Fancy Bear group. What kind of are the details of, of one or two others? So uh, just quickly, the five hacks are the rubber Morris worm, where the first time that somebody had taken down the internet in 1988. The second was Bulgarian virus writers in the early 1990s who were extremely good at writing computer viruses, generally for DOS machines, PCs. And then the hack of Paris Hilton's cell phone in 2005, the eponymous fancy bear hack of the Democratic National Committee in 2016, which some people think might have led to the election of Donald Trump in that election. And then finally, the Mariah botnet by three teenage boys who put together an Internet of Things botnet and took down the Internet in October 2016. So those were the five hacks. And I chose them in part because well, they interested me. And they also dealt with different aspects of computer security, viruses, worms, the Internet of Things, botnets, nation state espionage, just kids acting like idiots. I tried to pick things that were interesting, had an element of mystery. A lot of these hacks, people don't exactly know how they happened. And so I had to try to figure them out and just general true crime espionage stories I found interesting. So the technologies that cover those ridiculously wide, as you mentioned, from like Internet of Things to generally like some what people might describe as quite easy social engineering style hacks. Were there commonalities between any of them? Like what linked you from story to story? Yeah. So there are a bunch of commonalities and don't want to draw too much from this because like I just picked them. There could be selection bias. You know, maybe these are the ones that show the pattern that I want to show. But a lot of this stuff is backed up by scholarship on how hacking and how hackers work. But so the first thing I would say is that we tend to think of hacking because it's a, obviously it's a very technical activity that it must just be a technical activity. But one of the things that you see is that there's an enormous amount of kind of social engineering going on. There's a lot of human manipulation happening in the background, not only in terms of the hack, but what you see and what I try to show in the book is that the vulnerabilities that are exploited by these hackers really come about because of some kind of political vulnerability in the rules that regulate our behavior. What I try to do in the book, I make a distinction between what I call down code, which is all the computer code below our fingertips, and the up code, which is all the rules like above our fingertips, like our personal ethics, our habits, the organizational norms that were part of our social norms, our legal norms, industrial standards, terms of service, all these kinds of rules which give us incentives to either produce technology or to use technology, what I try to show is that there's always some glitch, some bug, some vulnerability in the upcode, which generates vulnerabilities in the downcode. And 
when we see the hackers exploiting the down code, in some sense, it's already too late. There's already been so much, so many mistakes beforehand. And so one of the messages of the book is not to treat cybersecurity as this purely technical activity, but also as this political inquiry into why the rules that we have give us bad incentives. That's one commonality. Another commonality is that in almost every one of these cases seems to be young teenage boys that the intelligence agencies and analysts almost always confuse for nation state actors. And that's kind of, it's kind of funny. (laughs) So taking the first commonality there, the upcode, as you say, is always a lot harder and a lot slower to change than the downcode, right? Like reprogramming something is always the easiest route to kind of changing that type of thing. But what do you think we need to change as a society to, to help that kind of the upcode? What needs to change? Yeah, so we're very familiar. I imagine your listeners are very familiar with the idea of a, of a stack, you know, a stack of code. People talk about full stack, software engineers, things like that. So we have a down code stack, but we also have an up code stack. That is, we have a set of interlocking and hierarchical set of rules which govern our behavior. You know, there's so many ways to intervene in the up code stack in order to change our incentives. Let me give you one example. And there are many examples. One example is in the Mirai botnet, which was 2016, a bunch of teenagers got together, put together an Internet of Things botnet, generally DVRs, security cameras, things like that, and created a very powerful distributed denial of service attack apparatus for taking down Minecraft servers. They were able to do this because the Internet of Things devices that they were exploiting had default passwords, which in many cases, nobody was actually able to change them or it's very hard to change. And so they exploited these default passwords because these default passwords were Googleable because they were part of manuals for these DVRs. And so one very simple change in the law, which was California enacted security law, which required regional precautions for Internet of Things devices, which basically requires the user to either change the password when they get it or some other kinds of precautions. That really took away the problem, eliminated the problem, at least in the United States, of default passwords for IoT devices. It's not to say that it doesn't exist anymore. But that one change in a California law had a ripple effect throughout the entire United States because how big California's market is. So that's just one basic example of how that's a targeted upcode change. You can think of a much more general upcode change, for example, imposing software liability for negligently constructed software that has very bad security vulnerabilities. You can imagine much bigger changes like that in the book gives lots of examples of how you might be able to change up code in order to create stronger and more more secure down code. That's really cool. Always the idea of technology companies leading this is always that, you know, and this comes from someone who works for a technology company, we will solve problems with technology. And this is actually quite a good example. I think we will solve things like phishing with standards like pass keys and that kind of stuff. And it might solve like a a decent chunk of it, but it is that kind of societal change that also needs to happen. So, but when people say, you know, oh, you're a law professor, why are you writing a book on cybersecurity? And one of the things I say, you know, 
one of the things that lawyers are is they're coders. They're just up coders, not down coders. And so what I would like to see is that lawyers like become teched up or become technologists, but more importantly, working with tech people to try to come up with the right sort of upcode, downcode fixes so that we're not constantly trying to fix problems whose causes way, way earlier in the upcode stack and that we're always just kind of fixing mistakes that could have been solved sooner and more efficiently. Yeah, I, I think that like misconnection between technology and the law happens around encryption as well, right? Like it's it's constantly like, let's outlaw this little bit of encryption and not this bit. And there's like a huge misunderstanding of one side believes it's a moral argument, the other side believes it's a mathematical one. That's right. That's an upcode thing too. So you have in the privacy community, you have people who have very strong values about privacy, which I'm not sure shared by people outside that community, to be perfectly honest with you. Not that I'm anti-privacy, of course not. And, and I'm actually very strong pro-encryption and I'm very against any type of backdoors, not only for the obvious reasons of breaking security protocols and all the things that technologists have mentioned, but one of the things that people don't realize is that the law properly understood, at least in the United States, which has very strict rules about these things, there are lots of ways of getting around the problem of encryption that we ought to be exploring. That is, the law has many solutions to the problem of encryption that we can avail ourselves of instead of changing the entire way that the entire world encrypts information on the internet. I mean, it just, it's, th there are so many easier ways to deal with these problems, which is not to say that they are easy problems to solve. They're just easier ways of doing it than we are currently exploring right now. Yes, absolutely. Well said. Did finishing this book or, or, or writing this book change your outlook on InfoSec or cybercrime, the landscape in general? Yes, I guess I guess I kind of feel like by doing research on these hacks, the first thing I learned was never believe what you read in the newspaper about the cause of a hack because, you know, people just say crazy things all the time. They just don't know and then they just say it. And it's, you know, and my favorite story is that New York Times has this big story about how Paris Hilton's cell phone probably was hacked. Tell a story about a security company that software defined radios in their knapsacks and found all this kind of, uh, these celebrities were using Bluetooth enabled devices and maybe Paris Hilton's Bluetooth was hacked. And, you know, this is the New York Times. So you think, oh man, then maybe her Bluetooth was hacked until you find out that the cell phone that she had, the Sidekick 2, didn't have Bluetooth. So just one of the things I learned was don't believe what you read in the newspaper. People just say things all the time. But I guess the other thing is, is that I think so much of the industry is built on fear and freaking people out and making us feel like anything we do is going to be ultimately futile because there are these really, really both crazy, but also brilliant people who are trying to get us. And I guess I kind of feel like, you know, just because a device is hackable doesn't mean that it's going to be hacked. The person who's doing it has to have some incentive to do it. In so many instances, there's just no incentive to hack your device because there's no money to be made from it. If there is some money to be made from it, it's generally, if you're not a high-valued target, 
you know, they just want to pull your computer into a botnet. Maybe they want to do some kind of automated fraud or something. Just don't be reckless. That's what I've come down to. If you're not a high value target, if you're a normal person, you know, do the very basic things that people tell you not to do, like don't click on links and emails, use a password manager, don't write it on a post-it and put it on your laptop. It's just kind of things like that. If you're a high value target, I think it's a very different story. If you're a journalist, human rights activist in the C-suite, have control over money, all those things, then you really, really, really need to take it quite seriously because people really are out to get you. And what's the main thing that you think you'd like readers to take away from your book? What are some of the main points? Well, first of all, I want them to have fun. They're <laughs> not going to read a book on cybersecurity and hacking unless it unless they're going to turn the page. And so I think the book is, I mean, I tried to at least make it fun. The stories are just wild, crazy stories. There's a lot of amazing things and somewhat funny things that are happening in these stories that it actually do involve a lot of pain and suffering. So I'd like them to enjoy themselves, but I actually want them to just to learn. I'm a professor. I teach. I teach students how to hack. I teach students how to protect themselves. I teach them general subjects. I, I like teaching. And I would love for people to read the book and go, you know, I never really understood how hacking worked, or I never understood how a buffer overflow worked, or I never really understood how passwords work. Like my phone doesn't know my passcode, yet somehow it will let me in if I enter the right passcode. How is that possible? That's what I would like for people to walk away with thinking, oh, wow, I learned how the internet works. I learned how I don't actually go through encryption in the book because there are limits to what you can expect people to deal with. But I would like them to know how passwords are stored as hashes in operating systems and things like that. So I would like people to become more secure, but ultimately I'd like them to become more educated. That's a great thing to write a book and, and try and do. Where can people go to find out more about you and to purchase the book? You know, their independent local bookseller would be the optimal thing. But of course, it's on Amazon and all the regular purveyors of books I have created with a colleague, Sean O'Brien, who runs Privacy Lab at Yale. We put together a hacking course in conjunction with Lawfare. So you can go to Lawfare and learn how to hack. It's a 12-hour long class that we normally teach at Yale, but we decided to do it over the internet. It has homework, has all the problem sets and answers. So if you want to learn how to hack, you can do that. And then I have a Twitter feed where I embarrass myself and my employer, Scott J. Shapira, on Twitter. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating. I'm now going to dig into some of the laws and societal structures that you talked about, because again, I, I think looking at it from the other side, I am far too quick to jump to technology to solve our problems when humans might be able to do it. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Okay, so Matt, Sarah, it is time for our last round of player passwords, right? Can you believe it? Unbelievable. We'll be introducing a new game next season. We will. But we don't know what that is yet, right? No, we need to put our brains together. Player passwords okay. mostly, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, this week we have the 90s nostalgia edition. Nice. Sarah was pretty good last episode with the 80s round. Look at Matt, he's stunned in silence. He can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So a reminder of the rules. I will show a password and then reveal how many times that password has been in a breach. I will then show another password and Sarah and Matt They will have to guess whether it's higher or lower and has been breached more or less times than the previous password. To do this, we use haveibeenpwned.com forward slash passwords. And if you want to, you can go there if you want to play along at home or fact check us. So remember that all these passwords are all one word and lowercase. So here we go. The first password this week is Goodfellas, a classic 90s film there with 6,394. So next password, we have another classic 90s film, Pulp Fiction, following from Goodfellas there, 6,394. Is that higher or lower? Uh, I'm going lower. See, I was going to go higher, so. Oh, we split. Immediately right off the bat. Matt, you're taking the first point. It's lower at 6,073. Oh, but just by a smidge. I mean, not by much. Okay, so here we go. We've got Britney Spears. Hit me, baby, one more time. Is that higher or lower than Pulp Fiction? Okay, so the password is literally just Britney Spears, lowercase. It's not Britney Spears, hit me one more time, right? (laughs) No, that would be a long password. Um, I'm going higher. Oh, see, I'm going to go lower. Britney Spears was around from like 2000s. And I think people created a lot of passwords then, perhaps more so when Pulp Fiction and Goodfellas came out. Mm. So I'm going from like... For like initial hype. Okay. I've justified my answer now, which means that I'm absolutely wrong. <laughs> it's one point each because it is lower, Sarah. 5,967. But look at the numbers again. Just that's even a tinier smidge. Very close. Okay, next we have grunge. Either of you are a grunge fan in the 90s? I mean, some elements of it. I was going to say yes, but not enough to make it a password. <laughs> <laughs> Is that higher or lower than Britney Spears? I'm going lower because it's too short. Yeah, I'm going lower as well. Sadly, you are both wrong. It is uh, higher at 9,462. Oh what websites are accepting that as a password? Grunge. Six characters. Lots of Nirvana fans, you see. What's happening? Okay, we've got that classic 90s TV show, The Simpsons. The longest running TV show, I believe this is. I think this has to be higher. I'm going to say higher too. Higher or lower than 9,462. Sadly, it is lower at only 6,182. It's surprising. So if we were playing with one of the bots, I think the bot would be kicking our ass. So we're not playing with the bot. (laughs) Yeah, especially lower bot. Not playing with the bot this week. Okay, so next one, we've got the 90s hairstyle mullet mm. is that higher or lower than the simpsons that's got to be lower what do we think mullet mm. six letters double letter in, a, in the thing i'm going higher would you believe it it's almost doubling the simpsons it is higher at twelve thousand three hundred seven oh. mullet there i don't understand <laughs> i don't understand why people have a mullet let alone have a mullet as their password yeah but there are a lot of people in the world so. Makes me think it means something else, or somebody spelled it wrong. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's actually like supposed to be mallet or something. <laughs> okay, so next up, Sarah, you mentioned this earlier, but we've got Nintendo sixty four. Oh, it's got a number in it as well. With the number, what do we think? Higher or lower than twelve thousand three hundred seven? I'm going to go higher. 
I'm going higher, even higher. Oh, okay. You're both going higher and you are both correct at 28,726. 28,000. There we go. How many of those are Nintendo accounts that have the password Nintendo 64? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now we've got that boy band. Backstreet Boys, is that higher or lower? Lower. Oh, lower. Definitely lower. That would be a BSB combo. You are both right. It is lower, 3,751. Next up, great 90s film, Pretty Woman, Mm. walking down the street. Um, Pretty Woman. Oh, no, I can't think. Higher or lower than 3,751. I'm going to go higher. I don't think it was more popular than the Backstreet Boys, though, was it? No. Julia Roberts, Richard Gere. I mean, I'm just, I'm judging this by the fact that I have not seen this movie. You haven't seen this movie? I, I have not seen Pretty Woman. Do you know that classic scene where she's like, you work on commission, right? No. Uh, but if you do tune in uh, to my radio show, it is the first thing that I play next Saturday. Uh, is um, uh, It Must Have Been Love by Roxette. You had to get a uh, future radio plug in there for our last episode, didn't you, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> You're the one who made these 90s themed. Um, I'm going lower. Okay, and I went higher, so this is my chance. Oh, here you go, Sarah. It oh, is yeah. higher at 6,000. I feel like the jeopardy is missing from us both being equal footing here. Four points in. But we, we're a lot of questions in. <laughs> we're, what, eight, eight in and we're both sitting at four? So we're not doing very well. Like, we might be tied, but it's not a good tie. Are you feeling nostalgic yet with the uh, 90s nostalgia edition? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was convincing. Okay, so next up we have Rollerblade. Is that higher or lower than 6,000 Pretty Women? A singular Rollerblade, just yeah, just, just Rollerblade. Okay. You won't get very far on one Rollerblade. but i got to go lower. Yeah, lower. A lot of double L's in there. You are both right. It is 2,635. You sounded very excited there, Anna. I thought for sure (laughs) you were going to say you were both wrong. Both wrong. No, I'm rooting for you, really. Okay. So next up, we have that epic 90s film, Titanic. Is that higher or lower than Rollerblade? 2,635. I'm going to go higher because I feel like that password has sunk many people's privacy (laughs) and been breached a lot of times. They've hit the iceberg. Oh, dear. Um, I'm going to go higher as well. Yeah, you are both right, and it's a big one. 83,324. 83,000. I feel like the next one might be lower, Anna. (laughs) Is the next password lower? Oh, okay. So next up we have The Matrix. We've spoken about it earlier on today. Just Matrix or The Matrix? Just Matrix. Is it higher or lower than Titanic? It's 83,000. Lower. I've got to go lower. I'm still going lower. You are both wrong. Uh, it is 278,650. But it's only six characters long. Lots of Matrix fans out there. I don't understand what these websites are. Oh, They're accepting this. What is happening? Big Keanu Reeves fans. Mm-hmm. I can understand, like, there is no spoon, like, as a passphrase or something like that. But, like, <laughs> there is no spoon. I could, I could justify that, but... 
just the matrix one word no no special characters no i feel like if it if you had said the matrix i that i probably would have said higher matrix on its own mm. no it's quick i don't I, quick and yeah. easy to enter you know i remember why we stopped playing this game <laughs> you got depressed faith in humanity gone so following up we have the lion king is that higher or lower i'm gonna go lower it doesn't have a the in it <laughs> I'm going to go I'm going to go lower as well. You are both right. It is lower, 49,341. I wanted to add some jeopardy into this, but I I couldn't say that it was higher. You're both still even Stevens. Okay. Penultimate password here. We have PlayStation. Is that higher or lower than 49,341? The Lion King. I'm going higher. I was going to say I've got to go higher on that one. Again, I'm I'm basing this on the fact that Nintendo was quite high. Okay, you're... see, I want to change my answer almost because Anna sounds excited, but it does it makes sense that <laughs> it's higher. You are both wrong. It <sighs> is lower, forty six thousand seven hundred eighty four. <sighs> Sorry, guys, not doing too well here. Dislike. Final password. Okay, and it has to be Spice Girls. Is that higher or lower? than PlayStation at 46,784. It's got to be higher. Okay, so Sarah said higher. Okay. Spice Girls, iconic 90s group. <sighs> huge in Britain. Yeah, but only Britain. PlayStation is worldwide. Oh, no, we're Canada. They, we, they were huge over here. That Spice World movie? <laughs> mm, box office, success. Tell you what I want, what I really, really want. <laughs> Girl power, you know? Okay. Yeah, I th- I'm going higher as well because 46,000 is not a lot. So you're both going higher. Both going higher. Okay. Sadly, you are wrong because it is lower <sighs> at 5,222. <laughs> okay. Maybe girl power was the better of the past. <laughs> Excellent. Well, a tiebreaker for the last round of player passwords, right? <laughs> Anticlimactic. The jeopardy never came. We were just, we were yeah. even all the way. Puts this game to rest nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Rue will be disappointed. I, I can't understand why Rue kept on losing, though. At some point, you've just got to start saying yeah. higher and just keep stick to one. Didn't Rue lose to ChatGPT last episode? Either lost or tied. I, it was not good, though. Yeah. He wasn't happy. It was not good. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. With that, I think we can say yeah. love you both. Love you both. Love you both. And we will see you in a few weeks yeah with a new game yay we look forward to reading all of your reviews that tell us how much you miss us yeah don't be too heartbroken (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back